0: Is Rising Podcast. This is episode number 59. I'm Joel and I hope this finds you well in these times. And I'm certainly really grateful at the moment for the country that I live in, the Netherlands, the way things are going here, and just um, my family is all well and healthy. So yeah, I wish you well. And today in the podcast, I'm going to be talking with Rick Hansen and he's written a book called neurodharma where he has kind of reverse engineered awakening and he's broken it down into these seven qualities that we can cultivate and we're gonna we're gonna explore those qualities in particular we're gonna dive into one or two or three of them and you know for me this kind of work this work of deepening as presence is just essential for us as coaches I just want to set a bit of context about that because if we are still identified with our kind of thinking mind, you know, that won't be one way to look at it. We, it's very, we're buffeted around, you know, there's no spaciousness within our kind of psyche, within our nervous system, both to navigate the complexity and uncertainty of these times, but also to hold space to navigate the uncertainty and complexity of our clients, we're kind of too caught up within ourselves and likely to become captured or triggered with our clients. So that kind of spaciousness and presence is really essential. So that's what we'll explore today. So yeah, Rick Hansen is, he's really exploring this sweet spot between neuroscience and wisdom tradition teachings. And he's really gifted at talking about that. He's a psychologist, uh, a senior fellow of the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley. He's a A best-selling author. His books have been published in 28 different languages and, you know, books including The Buddha's Brain and Resilience and he's been invited to speak at places like Google, NASA, Oxford and Harvard. So we're in great hands for this topic. If you're not on our mailing list, if you're a coach and you're listening to this and you're listening through Spotify or some other kind of streaming device, you can sign up and stay in the loop about our podcasts and our other free offerings like the cool one we have planned coming up around leadership in these times. Um, So you can sign up to our mailing list by heading to coachesrising.com and if you scroll down the page there you'll find this box. You put your name and email in there and you'll stay in the loop about the cool things we've got coming up. As usual I'd be very grateful if you would share this. So uh, here we go. Let's dive in. Here's Rick Hansen. Great. Let's well. Let's just carry on, Rick. From here, Uh It's, okay, it's just always uh, fun to hang out with you in these spaces, <laughs> and um, I'm excited to talk today because of your book that you've got coming out, Neurodharma. And um, actually, you could tell us the, is the f- the full title.
1: Oh, thank book? you. The subtitle describes the book very well. Yeah. New science, ancient wisdom, and seven practices of the highest happiness.
0: Right. Yeah. And I, I think it's um, it's a wonderful book and it's very important. It's, in fact, we had a, a kind of pre-conversation last year with Shinzen Young where we, we kind of yeah. explored it together. And um, let me ask, this is something I was curious about. I was yeah. just like, what, what inspired you to write the book?
1: I thought like if I go out in wilderness, which I've done a lot, I've always been interested in looking around after I sort of had my breakfast and, and think, what would, what would it be like to be up there? And how cool would that be, to be able to see from up there and to have the adventure of getting up to that little hill or mountain? What would it be like up, up there? And I'm just drawn in that direction. And I think in psychology, in our own experience of life, in terms of uh, happiness, love, wisdom, inner peace, inner strength, equanimity, serenity, Um, having a heart that's both completely open and absolutely fearless, that is like going up to the highest peaks. And in the spiritual traditions around the world, the ones that are both religious and also the ones, let's say, such as the original teachings of the Buddha that are really quite secular actually in many, many kinds of ways. They're very pragmatic and practical. Um, They're they're about natural phenomena mainly certainly um, you know we see there that same aspiration to for enlightenment awakening so and in psychology self actualization human potential peak experiences flow states what's actually possible the upper quarter or tenth even of human potential so i've always been interested in that and i'm not alone there's a long standing interest in that from around the world and so what i wanted to do in the book was to pull it together and really reverse engineer enlightenment in a respectful way to really and explore with our modern understanding the hardware of awakening. What is the hardware? What is going on in the nervous system inside the brain plausibly these days as people progress in the path of awakening? And what has uh, developed and stabilized in the brains of the great saints, the great yogis, the great sages, the great teachers, people we know in our own lifetime today. So Shinzen, for example. Shinzen has had remarkable experiences. He's deeply trained. Um, You could see the fruits of his practice in his own life. What's going on in Shinzen's brain? You know, I work backwards. I think what kind of neural circuitry is going on when he's rock solid steady of mind, right? What's happening there? And then as we reverse engineer that, we can understand things to develop those qualities increasingly in ourselves. So that was the fundamental undertaking. Uh, and um, in a sense, I think that a problem in our culture in the last several decades has been a gradual lowering of our sights of human possi- about, what is hum- about what is actually possible in a human life in the daily grind, the polarization of politics, the stagnation of well-being in the middle class broadly in the developed parts of the world. Um, all that is the consumerism, the crass materialism the flooding with media and entertainment, um, you know, getting to Friday. And I think we've lost sight of self-actualization, of, of enlightenment, of awakening, the upper reaches, right? And I think it's really important to dust that off and to clear the view, to keep the snowy peaks in view, even if we're down in the dusty plains or the lower foothills. And so that's what the book's inspired by, and then it's endlessly practical. Uh, It really, to me, is the coolest stuff, the deepest wisdom from the tradition I know best, Buddhism, Uh, uh, and combined with the coolest, most recent brain science. Wow. And then applied in seven very very practical experiential ways
0: Mm. yeah i want to sort of go into those different ways that it's applied but um just to put it in the context of our times uh, do you feel that you know of course in some ways we're we're just moving through this whole coronavirus thing and you know where where will it lead us nobody knows it's very complex and uncertain but What's your sense of it in relationship to what we just talked about with, you know, the lowering of our sites and the potentials of, you know, these traditions like Buddhism and others out there. What's your sense of how these might, you know, it might catalyze something or.
1: Yeah, we are uh, living through uh, an historically extraordinary time. And, um, you know, I think of the so-called Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. These are very interesting times. Many things will be said about it from the standpoint of 10 years from now and 100 years from now and 1,000 years from now. People will be writing about and exploring and unpacking what happened here. But for me, there, there are several top-level headlines. One is that I think many, many people, this is a shock and to individuals and to societies. And in the shock of it, I think many people are realizing that they've been propped up by their activities and settings and uh, interactions and the experiences they've been having as a result. And as long as the music kept playing, it was okay, right? It was like musical chairs, you know, it was all just fine. But as soon as the music stopped playing, because there's a storm upon us and it will be upon us for, all, for certainly many months, probably a couple of years before we get to a reliable vaccine and you know some normalization again. And then we'll be dealing with years of the economic and personal consequences. Uh, but the storm is down upon us and uh, many, many people have looked inside and I think that it looks like the cupboard is bare. They realize, wow, when the storm comes, what you have with you is what you've grown inside or what you've really developed in your important relationships with other people. And it's a wake-up call that we need to develop more of those internal resources that are durable, hardwired, literally, into our nervous system. Uh, People have been propped up by states without acquiring positive traits. And now that they're no longer propped up, whoa, what do I have inside me? So that's, I think, a wake-up call, number one. And I think the second wake-up call for societies is that we have seen at a policy level, certainly in America, and I think there have been certain aspects of that in in Europe, especially in Great Britain, the United Kingdom, um, there's been a sustained politicized attack on the common good. For 40 years, there's been a sustained attack on... Uh, public health systems, the social safety net, uh, the whole idea of a society. Margaret Thatcher, for example, famously said, there is no society. There are only individuals and families. Well, all that is fine as long as the music is playing, right? We've been very fortunate in our generation that uh, there have been struggles and difficulties, but we have not, for example, suffered a um, world war in our most of our lifetimes and we have not suffered a pandemic of this kind in our lifetimes Um, and the planet has not been struck by a significant asteroid in our lifetimes and everything's been kind of fine as long as the music's playing but when the storm comes to for example america it's as if my country has been like a fancy looking house with you know trump's logo (laughs) on the the outside and it all looks kind of shiny and golden and propped up, except it's been hollowed out by motivated termites for 40 years. And when the storm comes, we realize, wow, we have not invested in the common good, much as in your work, you teach people how to invest in their psychological good, the individual good, in terms of acquiring capabilities that then they can use to help others, right? At a public policy level, we need to invest in the common good. And what's being shockingly revealed are the consequences of not investing in the common good and in fact attacking those things that promote the common good, such as science, civil society, the rule of law, journalism, democracy, uh, and policies that build up reserves for the common good that we can draw upon when the storm comes we've failed to do that. And I hope the takeaway at the individual level and at the public level is to realize we need to reinvest in ourselves.
0: Yeah. I I spoke, I, this seems to be a common uh, message. I spoke to, for example, Elizabeth Stanley, who is a trauma and stress kind of resilience expert. And she talked about this exogenous shock that we're in, which has highlighted the, the compartmentalization of, of life and how, you know, there's just unprecedented levels of stress of, yeah. you know, chronic illness and the same things you're saying, you know, that we've been on this hamster wheel, you know, boom, 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 yeah. the, like cortisol firing and, you know, now it's stop. you know? Yeah. And, and so I think it on the one hand, the cupboards are bare and people are maybe starting to like take a breath and just say like, what, what's important to me?
1: Totally right. And, um, To use a kind of metaphor from my background in wilderness and mountains and rock climbing, um, everything's fine when the sun is shining and the climb is easy and uh, everything's going your way. But suddenly when the storm comes, let's say, or you realize that the route that you're on has actually not been protected properly, Then suddenly you look inside your backpack that you've brought with you and you realize, Oh my goodness, I forgot all this gear. I just thought everything was fine. Like I have a friend who would always leave his jacket back at the car. And I would literally bring a second jacket for him because I knew he would forget his jacket and he wouldn't realize that it gets cold in the afternoon and it rains often in the mountains in the afternoon. Uh, You know what I mean? So I think there's a way in which we've uh, kind of, a lot of us are looking inside and realizing, wow, I need to invest in what I'm bringing along in my personal backpack as I go through this life, right? I need to fill myself up. And so the tie into to the, the book is really, really timely and strange. Um, yeah. uh, the, what the book's about really is developing over time, hardwired into your nervous system, grounded in science, the most unshakable core of, I'll just name the seven qualities, steadiness of mind, that sounds pretty good, lovingness in your heart, and unshakable compassion and kindness, even as you speak truth to power, Third, a sense of fullness, contentment, equanimity, a stability of lovingness and inner peace, so that this the stressful craving of drivenness or aversion or clinging to others falls away. So an unshakable core, steadiness, lovingness, fullness, you get a feeling of that. And then more subtly but and more profoundly, a sense of wholeness, being whole. You're all included and your mind is experienced as a peaceful whole while receiving nowness, while really living at the front edge of now continuously with comfort, uh, feeling comfortable with arising and passing away continuously, the radical ephemeral nature of all experiences, being okay with that and living in that edge of emergent delight and interest and playfulness and, and gobsmacked gratitude Nowness, while feeling connected to everything, really recognizing inner being, as Thich Nhat puts it, one of the great failures of our time is not recognizing inner being, and in fact, attacking the whole idea of it, right? Opening into allness, you know, feeling like a local expression, uh, buoyed by nature. So you're a local wave in the ocean, and yet you know fundamentally that you are the ocean expressing itself through you and all the while your nature is water. That's pretty cool. And then the seventh practice I call finding timelessness. It's a way of uh, just describing somewhat poetically a sense of that which is unconditioned, that which is stable, not subject to arising and passing away, therefore timeless, therefore eternal, um, the ultimate refuge, the farthest shore, as the Buddha put it a long time ago. So. The book's about developing these seven qualities, right? Steadiness, lovingness, fullness, wholeness, nowness, allness, timelessness, which are fabulously wonderful as they're gradually perfected as we approach the pinnacle of the mountain of awakening. And meanwhile, holy moly, are they useful in everyday life when you're stuck at home with people who are irritating or uh, you can't do familiar things you used to wanna do or um, a lot of the superficial props of your life have fallen away and you're left with what's in your heart. And it's wonderful when what's left in your heart is enormous serenity and love and contentment and wisdom, right? That's very, very useful when things are at their worst. So for me, these seven qualities are about developing oneself for when things are at their best while being very, very useful for when things are at their worst.
0: And it, it seems like when you put them all together that it's a really like a, a complete picture or at least a f- very full picture of what yeah. Um, yeah. human experience could be rather than like you know, a lot of people focus on one or two. Exactly right.
1: Yeah and and again to me it's it's just common sense if you think of people who pick your pick your person in modern times or historically that it, you consider yeah that's a wholly admirable person uh, they might even be enlightened or if they're not enlightened they're farther along than I am right let's say and i'll just name a few people you know currently ticked on on the dalai lama i've i've known teachers i could look at them and i go yeah you you 've got something going, you know Shinzen, let 's say has qualities certainly that uh, are farther along than my own, and then we just kind of look at them and go what 's it like to be them? What are they like? How would you describe how would you operationalize enlightenment and uh, at the peak and for me it 's the perfection of they 're steady, their hearts are loving there 's equanimity, they um, have this sense of wholeness in the present, connected to everything always on the edge of mystery, right? These seven qualities seem pretty clear. Maybe there's an eighth or a ninth. I don't know. I, I can't think of one. To me, uh, these are ways of talking about uh, the possible human and then how we can develop ourselves along the way. Yeah.
0: And, you know, for a lot of people, it might be, it might sound like, wow, that's a, that's a lot, you know, to take in. So, yeah. um, and you know, do you see these sequentially or um, is it? You know, yeah, so you start with number one steadying. Yeah, your mind. Um
1: we can feel them, like literally in and as coaches. <clears throat> it is our nature to be present, loving, and contented. When we're disturbed, we leave that home, that home base. We are driven from our home. But it is our nature to have a field of awareness that is undisturbed, even though disturbances pass through it. It is our um, it is our nature, certainly, to be de- dependently connected with everything. We, we are interdependent, that's our nature. And um, I think since timelessness in some sense is an, is an inherent feature of reality, and, and in my view as well, it's an aspect of, um, what is beyond the ordinary natural Big Bang universe, it's always the case. So this material is about coming home to who you already are and clearing away the underbrush and the clouds and the confusion so that more and more you feel, oh, okay, this is who I am. And so that's an important point. It's not about some kind of 20 year training. It's about doing little things that gradually, in my book, little things that gradually really bring you home to yourself. So that's, that's very important. We can all have a taste of these things. We all know what it's like to have a mind who's that steady, a heart that's open and, and caring and strong, courageous, a courageous heart. Uh, we all know what it's like to have a sense of, well, I'm, I'm just part of the universe. You know, you're out by the ocean or you look up at the stars or you're like you, we were talking earlier, you have a seven month old, I believe. I, my wife and I have had two kids. As soon as you have kids, you just realize, wow, I am plugged into life. There, there is this life process happening here, right? We all have a taste of these things. And then, you know, for me, it becomes really interesting to explore how to help them really stabilize. Now that said, yeah, I think there is sort of a natural flow you know, you first have to steady your mind, because if you don't, you can't do anything. <laughs> You're scattered all over the place. Really quickly, it's important to warm the heart. Sometimes people start with warming the heart. I'm totally fine with starting there, you know, uh, and I think people vary, but, you know, just where you feel um, a sense of, okay, there's a caring in me toward others, and there's a receiving of their caring as well. The heart is warm. Heart is open. All right, steady. Um the material on fullness uh, really gets, up for me, the fulcrum of Buddhist practice, the tipping point, the movement between the second and third noble truth uh, from you know, more craving to less craving, from a lot of craving to no craving, right? Uh, and then stabilizing that. So increasingly you're aspiring in life without attachment to the results, right? You are taking appropriate uh, caution these days with the, epi- with the epidemic but you're not a, you're not you don't feel afraid. You feel vigilant. You feel wary. You feel strong. You feel prudent. But you're not invaded by anxiety, right? About the current moment. That's equanimity. That's the third practice of fullness. And so there's a natural progression. And then some of the coolest neuroscience in the book is in the last four: wholeness, nowness, allness, timelessness. Uh, and they're, the scientists are ahead of the practitioners in a lot of ways. You read these papers, I, I read a ton of them and I translate them uh, and apply them. I'm a, I'm a methods guy. Uh, so you read them and you suddenly realize, wow, this scientist is saying something about the brains of rats and acknowledging the ethics and the issues, ethical issues around animal research and so forth. That said, this process in the brain of a rat when it feels rewarded, wow. If I turn that into an experience that I can have that's more differentiated or clarified by applying what that scientist has found out about dopamine processes in the brain of a rat, wow, I can feel less driven and tense and contracted even while I work 10 or 12 hours a day and get a bucket load of stuff done.
0: Wow. Let, let's take that point you just brought up because I'm like, woohoo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, All right, and and I then know, you
1: read other stuff. And yeah. let alone, yeah. you know, not, you know, about like how do you how does the how does the rat or the cat or the human actually naturally start to have a sense of less sense of contracted self, you know, may precious, right? Possessiveness. Right. Less of that. And more of a beautiful feeling of being lived by
0: life in a very supported way. Yeah, exactly. Okay, back to you. Well, um, yeah, because I, I'd love to explore some of the. Yeah, I think you know the neurodharma of uh, these practices. Yeah. I think that's really exciting. You said, for example, that, that you know, with rats, this kind of um, they're exploring how you know, this mechanism of, is it craving and drivenness, which can, can then teach us about how we can kind of live beyond that. That was my sense of it into a place of peak performance. So that's right. Tell us a little bit about the science of that in a nutshell, but then I guess I'm interested in how that points to practicing effectively. Great. I imagine that neuroscience is showing us there are, there's ways we can really practice effectively.
1: Yeah. So, um, this And this kind of illustrates a general principle, runs throughout the book. For me, dharma is a word from India, uh, essentially means the way it is. And it's, it's a way of nodding to the perennial wisdom from around the world, not just in the East, but throughout the world. And then the neuro part is the, the science, the objective part. So there are kind of like two ways of knowing ourselves from the inside out, the dharma part, and from the outside in, the scientific part, the neuro part, and where they come together is full of opportunity because you can move back and forth from these perspectives. Okay. So I'm, uh, acknowledging here a marvelous researcher named Kent Barrage and people can take a look at his papers. There's a whole stream of work here. He's really revolutionized a lot of, um, uh, the work on motivation and, and addiction. And the super short version is that, uh, The brain is highly complex. Everything's involved with everything else, blah, blah, That said, there's certain parts that are especially important. So deep in the subcortex, uh, in a region called the basal ganglia, which sits on top of the brain stem, started to evolve uh, with the the most developed reptiles like alligators, and especially with um, mammals. So in the basal ganglia are different regions, and in a part that's called the nucleus accumbens, it's also called the ventral, which means lower striatum. It's kind of confusing, but nucleus accumbens. Uh, it's a, um, centrally involved in motivation, in getting us to want things, okay? So if you think about craving, a lot of it is about wanting and insistence. Got to have it, okay? What Baird's. Discovered with his colleagues is that there are little tiny nodes. Maybe imagine like little tiny BBs, like a BB gun, you know, or, you know, sort of like five millimeters in diameter, really, really small, maybe a cubic millimeter. These little tiny nodes. And there's a distinction between the nodes that are involved in liking, like enjoying the taste of a sugary liquid. The rat will lick it, it likes it. Other nodes do wanting, where the rat will do anything to get that reward, like a shot of cocaine, even if it doesn't enjoy it. And these are distinct, they're distinct little nodules, which means that we can tease apart experientially, liking from wanting, so that we can pursue our goals over the course of a day while enjoying it without Uh, carrying a burden of stressful, insistent, contracted wanting. Right there. There's a proverb that says that liking without wanting is heaven, wanting without liking is hell. That's it. Tease it apart. So when you realize, oh, structurally, literally in the circuitry of our motivational systems, which we share with rats, you know, because we are fellow mammals, our cousins, the rats, right? Right. we can pull apart in our experience, liking from wanting. Now, it it helps to have a little mindfulness and practice with it and start to notice what it's like. Right now I'm doing it, to be dropped into the feeling of liking, like I like being here, I'm enjoying this, it's meaningful, it's fulfilling, it's rewarding, it's delightful, you know, without feeling driven about it, without, you know, you can start to pull those apart and you realize, oh, wow, I can hold on to the benefits of liking, you know, of, of moving toward wholesome goals, of feeling fulfilled along the way, having great quality of life, really enjoying it along the way without the add-on stress and contraction and insistence and egoity, self-referential, like, Egos want, beings like.
0: Yeah. I was going to ask, so, um, you know, does the wanting then create that kind of contraction into a, you know, into a more egoic state? It tends to, doesn't grasping?
1: it? Grasping. Yeah. Yeah, you can notice it again. And so the, and I mean, it, yeah, exactly right. And it, it's such an illustration. When I came upon that research you know, a number of years ago, it just kind sort of blew my mind, and it became interest immediately um, a parallel to the Middle Way in Buddhism. So you start seeing, oh, wow, these ancient teachers and their modern students, and I count myself among them, who do, who do things because they seem to work and they, you know, they're, they're wise, suddenly you realize, oh, wow, that's how that works and that's why I should really do it. I should really tease apart um, and, and know what it feels like to be active and goal-directed and purposeful while simply resting in the feeling of liking and fulfillment, okay? Rather than get, getting caught up in insistence or pressure, these are all markers of craving. And I'm using the word wanting in a very specific way here, in a, in a narrow sense of craving, you know. Pressure, insistence, contraction, that sense of must, you know, it's gotta be a certain way, uh, forming expectations, and, and like it's gotta, you know, it's gotta turn out that way. As Soon as you get into that, you're in the second noble truth of craving and you're in the red zone and you're on the slippery slope to trouble. Uh, Yeah, we can get through a day that way. We can get through uh, an intense time that way, but in a funny kind of way, if this epidemic teaches us anything, we are gonna be involved in a marathon now for the next year or two, at least, I think. Uh, That's certainly all the experts predict that uh, from both a public health standpoint and an economic standpoint. We're gonna be in it for a while. Gotta realize that this is not uh, a little rain that's going to pass over us. This is a, we're in for a long winter. Winter has come, you know, from,
0: um, Game of Thrones.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I can't believe it. Game of Thrones. Winter is coming. us. Winter's yeah. here. <laughs> yeah. And then now what do we do? Cause spring will come spring will come spring. will yeah. come. So anyway, during this time, it's kind of extend for a while, learning how to rest in liking without wanting is really
0: useful. And just to extend that example further, because I think it's really useful, you know, it's what I get from what you say is it's a very embodied practice, isn't it? You know, so throughout the day, one could be paying attention, you know, like how would you, if you were to Mm -hmm. give someone that practice, Yeah, would be like, yeah, you know, get a feel for them both and then Um, throughout the day, track it.
1: Yeah, so a uh, nice way to do it, and it's like the rat research, you know, just taste something you like, it's, you know, and, uh, you know, the classic raisin exercise where you just put it in your mouth and, you know, let it sit there for five minutes. or And notice how you feel like, okay, I'm going to do it here. So I have a glass of water. It has a little kombucha in it, right? So I'm going to take a sip. I like it. I can simply like it without insisting on having more. And people can start to tease apart the sense of liking from the sense of wanting. And people can also be aware of wanting, you know, without enjoying it. Classic example, um, people in, who have a gambling addiction, you just keep pulling the slot machine. And every so often it pays off they don't even smile, right? They don't. They don't like it. They don't enjoy it. There's no sense of gratification. It's just robotic, drivenness. Want, 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 want. That's hell, right? So we can tease these apart. Uh, yeah. People can be aware of what it feels like to want without enjoying, uh, or to get it. So many people in the business world are living in hell. They want without liking. And uh, they will achieve a goal, let's say, including many, many small goals along the way. Each email completed, each meeting done, right? Each task taken off the list, except they hardly enjoy it, they they don't appreciate it. They don't notice the sweetness, in effect, of that little moment. And that's kind of a hell realm, to move through life uh, wanting without enjoying.
0: yeah. Yeah. It, it it speaks to me again of, of the, the imperative for us to, you know, um, activate some of these neural pathways that allow us to, you know, build these capacities, you know, that we're actually, oh, yeah, we're oriented towards like a negativity bias, for example, or, yeah. you know, so, um, I wonder if you could tell me, there's one, another one you, you told me, and I thought, oh, that sounds super cool as well, We could unpack that. You said being lived by life, Yeah. which I, well, you know, yeah.
1: Great. So here, here too, again, the neuroscientists are ahead of the practitioners, um, although often what you find is that when you unpack what the science kind of means, suddenly a bell starts ringing and you realize, oh, I read that in some Tibetan book a long time ago, or oh. You know, when I grew up, I had a baseball coach who said, always do this before you go to the plate, you know, and swing the bat in American baseball, let's say. Um, And you realize, oh, that's why they said that. Okay, so it's not, but much of the time uh, in the psycho-spiritual warehouse of 10,000 tools, we don't really know the ones that matter. And now part of what's happening is the neuroscientists are helping us to appreciate what we should prioritize. So. Here's an example. Um, In your brain, naturally, even as you and I have been sitting here, Joel, our brains have naturally cycled, or as people listen to this or perhaps even watch it, their brains naturally move back and forth perceptually. And this this is particularly noticeable with the visual field. We move back and forth between two fundamental perspectives. One perspective is called egocentric, It's not bad. It just means it's self-referential. We look out in the world or we frame what's happening as it is relevant to me. What's this got to do with me? Okay, that's useful. Then there's another frame of reference, though. It's called allocentric, and it means taking things impersonally as they are without particularly privileging our own perspective. You know, it's, it's things objectively. And then that's the allocentric perspective. Egocentric perspective is self-referential. So we naturally cycle back and forth between those. Well, if you have an interest in what it's like to be one with everything, you would want to increase the allocentric perspective. And if you recognize, as many have, you know, currently and over the millennia, that the contracted sense of self the presumption of some kind of thingified entity inside uh, who I am rather than the sense of being a person, a much more of a distributed body-mind process that does have individuality and continuity and rights and responsibilities and so forth over time. Being a person is distinct from being an ego or in the particular sense I mean it here, a self, the psychological self. If you start to realize that, oh, I'd like to let go of myself, right? Uh, to quote Dogen, the great Japanese Zen master, to study the way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be lived by all things. Mm-hmm. There are other translations that are slightly different, but that's the gist of it. So how do we experience being lived by all things in and in, in a way that releases the suffering and contraction and harms that come from this narrow sense of, you know, possessiveness and me, myself, and I, right? So that seems like a pretty good goal. Neurologically, there are things that activate the allocentric perspective that we can train in. Just like you said earlier, we can train in, we can develop trait allocentrism, trait felt interbeing. We can really develop that. And so in that chapter of the book, the opening into allness chapter, I describe ways of having insight into the apparent self, so you gradually let it go. And meanwhile, you train in this sense of allness, the sense of interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh puts it. And one way to do it right now, you could do it with me. It's really cool. If you look near to your body, that naturally engages the egocentric perspective. And even like a meter or two away. And just kind of notice that psychologically, with mindfulness, you can be aware of this, that the sense of self, the sense of I, tends to increase as your gaze is within a couple meters of your body. And this makes sense because in the wild, as our neural circuitry was evolving over 600 million years, things that were proximal, that were close to the lizard, the mouse, the monkey, the caveman, the modern human, um, cave women too, obviously, things that were close were, were immediately relevant, friend or foe, is it gonna eat me or can I eat it, right? Uh, on the other hand, if you extend the gaze out many meters and you start to move it toward the horizon, maybe you get a sense of the whole volume of the room, you look at the corners, up at the ceiling, you'll notice a shift in your psychology, less sense of contraction, less sense of I, less verbal chatter that's self-referential, always commenting on what you're thinking, and often a, a, a softening of stress, a calming comes in, right, when we're taking things as a whole, impersonally. It's like, oh, it is the way it is. What's interesting, in terms of evolution is that the allocentric view is earlier, it's more fundamental. It was the first to evolve. And it doesn't, in in a way it takes less processing power for a beetle or a lizard or a monk or a squirrel or a cat or a a monkey to just recognize things as they are. Um, It takes a lot of processing power to start to develop this very extended sense of self. Uh, and with a lot of chatter about the relevance to me of all the stuff around me. Both are useful, but many, many people these days are trapped in that egocentric view. And again, that's one of the things that has been, um, that we're paying the price for now, because that egocentric, selfish, self-referential, you know, it's only about me view that has been, frankly, highly driven and politicized by the right Um, And in my view, it's a it's a view that is fundamentally not conservative at all, because if you're conservative, you want to conserve, you want to preserve, you want to preserve the resources in the planet, you want to preserve the well being uh, of the common good, you want to preserve it, right. Um, And what's come with that intense egocentric perspective, all that matters is me and my gun and my gold in the long run that exposes us to huge risks. We've deferred and accumulated risks that we're now suffering and millions of people will die around the world as a result. Hmm. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, no, it's a great answer. And, um, yeah, I think it's again, one of the opportunities is how do we evolve beyond that, that kind of finite game we're playing. And, um, I wonder if there's something you could say about you're talking about this already, but this, what neuroscience is telling us about what's an effective way to practice to turn states into traits. I think that's a very um, potent place to go in our conversation because sometimes it seems, you know, that's not happening so much with people. So what does neuroscience say about that?
1: Um, well, neuroscience basically says that there are these two fundamental processes occurring in our bodies, and our, especially our nervous system, and particularly the brain. The one kind of process is momentary activation. A cell is in a particular state at a certain time. Um, a neural network is in a particular state at a particular certain time. A synapse, one of several hundred trillion synapses inside your head is in a particular state at a certain time. So that's one sort of thing that's going on. Then there, uh, the other thing that's happening are the effects of momentary states that create lasting change in the structure and function of the body in particular in its brain. So we have these two things. And that pro- they're kind of summarized in the famous saying, neurons that fire together states can wire together traits lasting change. That's the essence of learning in the broadest sense, including implicit learning, somatic learning, emotional learning, attitudinal learning, motivational learning, spiritual learning, the learning we most care about way beyond ideas and information. We care about uh, skills, the acquisition of skills, including interpersonal skills. Um, That's the kind of learning we care about. All right. So that's the fundamental process. And, Neuroscience also tells us that there are um, that there is a bias toward negative learning for raw survival purposes. Back in the Stone Age, back in Jurassic Park, during the Game of Thrones, you know, the Bronze Age, uh, it was uh, you know the Iron Age. Actually, they did have steel. So anyway, um, that it um, is is really important to you know really learn from negative experiences. Okay, that's useful maybe during Game of Thrones, right? Uh, But in most situations today, the negativity bias of the brain, which makes it, as I say, like Velcro for bad experiences, Teflon for good ones, uh, is really a problem. It creates a lot of unnecessary suffering, a lot of unnecessary conflict. It's easily manipulated by authoritarian leaders, uh, whether in a family or a company or a country. And we're vulnerable in that way. So it's very important to pay attention to the negativity bias. Neuroscience teaches us that. It also teaches us though, that there are little things we can do in our minds, as it were, that engage our brains, that increase the conversion from state to trait, from positive state to positive trait. We can actually steepen our growth curve, our learning curve every day, many, many times a day, and take charge from the inside out of the brain change process which is occurring already willy-nilly, often negatively, often based on being buffeted and pushed around and manipulated by external forces or the residues of internal reactions that still carry us away like trauma. So as you know, this, I would say is a real expertise of mine. I've developed super deeply the how of personal growth, the fundamental how of lasting positive change. right. What is that how, and how can we take charge of it from the inside out? Uh, you know, I've, uh, I've written about it a lot. You know my material about that a lot. We could be called positive neuroplasticity. Uh, the essence is really simple, you know, and I'll, I'll just tell you three things that coaches can do and teach their clients to do that draw on positive neuroplasticity. First is to extend the duration of the experience. If you're having a moment of feeling connected to everything, Right, or a moment of realizing, oh wow! In the next meeting I'm running, or the next time I talk with my partner, or the next interaction I have with my seven-month-old, I want to be more like this than that. I want to de- I want to develop a habit, uh, uh, and I, I want to learn a way to be. Or maybe you just have a moment of calming while you meditate, or just you have a moment of gratitude, looking around and seeing the cloud in the sky. Wow, well, I'm alive. It's not perfect, but. It's amazing, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Okay, you have a moment. Stay with it for a breath or longer. Stay with it for 5, 10, 20 seconds in a row. Keep those neurons firing so they wire together rather than skitter along. So that's what? Stay with it. You know, if if you're working with a client and you're helping them realize something, right? Uh, The dirty little secret is that so much of what we do in our work with people has no lasting value. They liked it while they were talking with us. We were propping them up, states prop us up, but they betray us because they're not fundamentally reliable. When their causes change, states evaporate beneath our feet, kaboosh. And then we're left with whatever traits we've already cultivated, and often the cupboard is pretty bare. So help the client, stay with it. Uh, You know, they realize something, they feel something, they're, they're motivated for something, stay with it for a breath or longer. That will increase the residues, physical change that are left behind. Second, feel it in the body. The more fully we feel the bodily uh, qualities of a realization we're having, the more we're going to carry that realization with us into the future. Uh, The more we shift the body into, for example, the posture of determination or a posture of openness and receptivity to what other people are saying or the physical posture Uh, of respect for diversity of a different kind of person in a multicultural workplace, whatever it might be. Or we shift into the posture of, hey, my voice matters too. My needs matter too, in this company and in this family. Not trying to dominate other people, put them under our thumb, but healthy entitlement. What's the physicality of that, you know? That's gonna increase the neural traces left behind, right? And the third, uh, of many suggestions I have, as you know, I have many methods. You can apply them to many things, but these are three. I, they, we just keep coming back to again and again. I love them. Third is focus on what's enjoyable. What's rewarding about that? That will increase activity of dopamine and norepinephrine in the brain. And as dopamine and norepinephrine activity increase in the brain, so does the conversion rate from state to trade. It's as if dopamine is marking the experience at the time as a keeper for Protection and 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 valuing and during consolidation into long term storage. Mm. One of these methods is good. All three are better. Using them once a day is good. Using them five times a day is better, right? Uh, uh, but that's the essence. That's the essence of the process.
0: Well, I, and I I know we've talked. We did a whole podcast on this, and I want you know I'd recommend people listen to that. Yeah. It's so important to me people might be listening to this and going oh oh cool but you know if people got this in their meditation practice you know so yeah. often they're doing a practice but they well, they uh, something arises a state arises but they yeah. keep doing the practice when actually they could be sinking into that state exactly that's what people miss i think it's it's well, right. and they miss it, it in coaching change.
1: sessions they miss yeah. it they're walking down the street they have a passing thought oh wow you know i don't need to sweat stress that so much whoop gone wasted all that money's left on the table right we waste our experiences so often and again is we get away with it when we're propped up by the next shiny object coming along the stream of consciousness but what happens when the music stops? When the shiny objects stop coming, you realize, "Wow, yeah, <laughs> you know, I did not save for a rainy day." <laughs> what a lesson!
0: Yeah. Well, I know we we're, we're coming to the end of time, mm-hmm. um, uh, so I want to invite you in a moment to share about where we can find out more about the book. Okay. Just one last comment I wanted to make, which was that, you know, um, this is for another time, another conversation, but that seventh. Practice of finding timelessness when you talked about that moment of potentiality, uh, which exists, you know, before mm. it's kind of I don't know how I would put that, but you know, imprinted over by our conceptuality. Yeah. Um, I think there's something in that for coaching too, you know, like there's mm. emergence of practices, yeah, like uh, with Patricia Albert, you know, like the um, interpersonal awakening practices, for mm. example, where it seems to me when I've done those practices, it's like you're almost tuning into that origination point Uh together.
1: Very good.
0: um, You know, it's incredibly powerful when, when Mm -hmm. we go there. So I wanted to say that I think there's something highly relevant in each of these points you brought up for coaches.
1: So I really appreciate you saying that. And in a nutshell, if someone wanted to, let's say read a book that, took very seriously the descriptions of the highest aspirations for any human being, took really seriously those descriptions and explored, okay, what's scientifically happening inside our body as we develop ourselves in that way? And then most important, how do we use that? How do we use that to accelerate our own movement up the mountain of awakening? If someone were interested in a kind of coherent, really accessible, very friendly, and very practical summary of all that, that's the book I wrote. That's what I wanted to write for myself because I'm deeply interested in this personally. And it's a very intimate book. I'm really quite exposed about my own journey uh, up the mountain, as it were. Um, And it's saturated with the most interesting modern neuroscience about who we are. And who we can become. So anyway, I just want to share that bit with you and also mention that I I taught this material. I've taught it in meditation retreats, 10-day retreats. When we start gathering again in person, I'll I'll keep doing it at least one or two a year. Uh, But I did it uh, and we recorded it. So we have this fantastic, well-edited program online of my meditations, my talks, and a lot of bonus material. And at my website, recantonason.net, people can learn about that NeuroDharma online program. And it combined with the book really are great together. Because you know you read the book, this is deep stuff. It's really okay to read a little bit and go, whoa, I want to feel that for a little bit. Then I'm going to come back to it. Um, it's also great to see it in the form of a retreat, you know, in a nice well-organized online program. Uh, because then you go through the guided meditations and you feel the energy of everyone else in the room. And I was definitely in the zone when I was teaching that retreat. So there's a lot of good through me, through me, transmission going on. Um, So I just want to encourage people in that direction. And then with regard to the last thing you said, there's so much about that, that we could talk about. Um, The short version for me, and I wish I could I'm gonna do it kind of as a metaphor. All right, I'm gonna use I'm gonna use the back of my phone. Now, ignore all the stuff on the back of my phone. Imagine it is just a sheet of paper. So here's a here's a a, a flat sheet, as it were, and um, it is made. It's a made object. Okay, got that. It's conditioned in a sense. It's created due to conditions. It depends. Its existence depends upon its the conditions that have enabled and caused it. All right. But in this space, particularly if we wrote small, we could create an infinite variety of pictures, words, meanings. We could take the entire body of the works of Shakespeare, all of Wikipedia, if we wrote small and we kept at it, could be represented on this field of possibility. So you see, there are many things that are effectively unconditioned. Awareness is effectively unconditioned. The awareness of a cat or Joel or me or your, your, your child or my two kids, that awareness is the result of the operation of the nervous system nested in broader conditions and evolution and life and all the rest of that. But inside that frame of conditionality, awareness is effectively unconditioned. It's infinitely free there are infinite possibilities and most of the time we're identified with and caught up with uh, content moving through the field of awareness it's as if we are caught up in various eddies swirling patterns patternings of awareness moving through the streaming of consciousness we're caught up with that sounds sights thoughts wants sensations plans reactions Okay, there's a place for that. But conditioned phenomena are unreliable. They're states. They're not a reliable basis for the highest happiness. And the great teachers direct us increasingly to be aware of what is unconditioned, what is more stable, what is more enduring. In other words, the way I put it in the book, love the eddy, be the stream. And as we start to drop into a sense of what is relatively or effectively unconditioned, a sense of spaciousness in which things occur, a sense of stillness around which motion or activity happens or a sense of possibility in which actuality occurs or a sense of timelessness through which time passes, immediately, We become calmer, more aware, we're more inclusive of what's happening and we become much more effective. We become less aggravating for other people. We don't foster negative blowback coming at us so much. And increasingly we feel free. We feel identified with what is always just before the present moment. And we feel a kind of freedom You know, it's as if the front of us is, is, is living into unfree actuality determined phenomena while staying in touch with a kind of spaciousness and freedom that's always just before what occurs. And I think that that can be applied in business settings. I have a business background, you know, before I became a touchy feely therapist. In other words, what's the space in which things are happening here? What's the field uh, in which things are happening? Um, What's a person's sense of awareness, which it is never itself upset, as upsets move through it? What What is the sense of the freedom in awareness that's distinct from a sense of pressured insistence on what has to happen? Yeah. And, uh, you know, and the ultimate point, because again, I'm, I'm really interested in reverse engineering the absolute highest possibilities. Why not? And I don't preach it in the book, but if, as I believe the Buddha taught, and as I believe many, many people, the, the most, the wisest remarkable people who've ever lived, usually point to something beyond ordinary reality. Now maybe there is nothing beyond ordinary reality. Maybe the dogmatic atheists are completely correct. The scientific materialists are completely accurate. There's nothing but the big bang universe and just deal with it. Okay, they might be right. And I'm fine with that. On the other hand, if a person like me has a, in some sense of the word, sense of or feeling for the transcendental. You know, the Buddha called it the unconditioned, that which is not, that which is not ordinary conditioned reality. Right? If you have a feeling for that and you're interested in your practice and your practice includes that. And that's a meaningful dimension of, of your life, well, the book also includes ways to understand what could be happening in the natural, including the natural brain as we approach what is beyond the natural, what is meaningfully distinct from ordinary natural reality, the transcendental, whose minimal attribute I think is unconditionality. And it may also include consciousness and benevolence of some kind, not from the standpoint of trying to persuade anybody to that or talk them into it, but to say, well, if you think there actually could be uh, transcendental matters that are meaningfully distinct from, the natural Big Bang universe, ordinary reality. Um, Here's a way of understanding what could be happening in the brain as we approach nirvana, to use that word, as we approach the cessation of ordinary conditioned experiences and encounter mystery, vastness, timelessness, and perhaps a consciousness and even a love that is not entirely your own.
0: Beautifully spoken. And um, I feel it permeating the space, even this sense of timeless spaciousness as you speak. And um, my sense is it's also, as we open to that space, I'm certainly someone who is oriented to believing in that kind of place um, as a direct experience um, that actually then becomes more possible to do what you just mentioned before in in passing, but you you said, I was on in the zone, you know, Something was coming oh, when through I was teaching me. the retreat, yeah, something was coming through me, and I think that's yeah. one of the gifts as we open, other than that it has inherent value in it for its own sake, it also is a place where we can act something does start to come down, come in through us and it has yeah. a different kind of potency or impact than you know, this, uh, this very different kind of place you've been articulating when we're in more of the egoic self and driven. Right. So
1: that's, that's right, that's right, that's right. Um, we can practice for different purposes. Um, narrowly, we can practice, you know, to become more effective in our work. And I think that's a legitimate purpose. So we can practice to become less stressed and, and less uh, afflicted by, our, by our, the residues of our personal history. We can second practice for the sake of others, you know, to, to be able to offer wisdom to them or simply become a kinder, gentler, more reliable uh, person for them to hang out with. That's very legitimate too. Um, and uh, it, we can practice um, with the intent of making changes within ordinary reality, in particular within our own body and brain, that gradually make us, if you will, more aware of and more accessible to, more open to, that which may well lie beyond ordinary reality. Kind of like practicing to clear the the mud and the dust off the stained glass windows in, in the body mind so that the light that's always already been there can more readily shine through.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great place to kind of bring this to a close. And, and what's funny is I noticed as we've talked about the transcendental and this, this place that the uh, connection has been a bit more, uh, uh, unstable, you know, it's like you're kind of disappearing <laughs> into the matrix a bit more. So that's <laughs> overloading the, the overloading yeah. zoom. So,
1: um, well, Joel, as always, it's such a treat to be with you. And I wish everyone well who might have a chance to listen to this or see it. And um, thank you very much for including me in this.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a real pleasure. And it's, just tell us your website address again. Oh,
1: sure. Rick Hansen, my name, S-O-N.net. And people can simply Google me and they'll find the website, which is a wonderful Repository of tons of freely offered uh, material, as well as some extremely well structured and very inexpensive and accessible online programs.
0: Great. Me again, you're on the other side of the podcast. Just a quick word to say thanks for listening. Really appreciate it. Be well. If you're not on our mailing list, you can find it at coachesrising.com on that front page there. Scroll down, you'll see a sign up box, particularly if you're a coach. And you want cool resources, perspectives, opinions, tools on being a more effective coach? Then you know head to our site. You'll see our programs, our offerings, our other podcast episodes, and you'll stay in the loop by signing up uh, to uh, you know to hear about the cool things we've got coming up. All right, see you next time.